This call may be recorded or transcribed. Good morning. Good morning, Ernie. Hey. Um, so since this is what is hopefully worth doing on the podcast, we'll see. Uh, but just in case we do, we'll figure we could try and catch up and actually maybe summarize because we've covered a lot of ground. We talked for two hours on Sunday and the, um, actually maybe you can summarize kind of the, the, this would be helpful for me, kind of the, we, you know, our last episode we were talking about discipleship and following Christ. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, you know, denying self. And uh, you talked before this about the truth that will set you free. And maybe you can kind of summarize what are some of the truths that you feel like you now, you know, are understand and or are pursuing that were not clear to you uh, beforehand. Um, Well, in my family relationship, I've uh, had complaints from my family that they don't feel loved. And uh, my protested that, you know, I do love you. And uh, the what has come out, is, well, so um, reflecting on John 8, 31 and 32, uh, to abide in my word, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Just struck me as the truth is that um, compared with the love that Christ has for the church, uh, I don't love my family. I have uh, I have a desire to love them. I have an intention to love them. I have a commitment. Uh, I make an effort, but there's something lacking in me um, without that that needs God to pour it out, and I may have shared with you the Frank Laubach's experience that he recorded of coming to realize that he did not love the people he was serving and that uh, he asked God to, first he said, I hate myself, I wish I were dead. And then uh, God didn't kill him. He said, God, if you can give me your love for them. And God did and transformed everything. Um, and so that's the, I'm, um, holding that before God as my desire as well for something, uh, in, for him to pour out his love, as he says in Romans that he does, uh, that, uh, that that would become my reality, not the love that I try to have, um, at the human level imperfect love, but his perfect agape love. I did that. Uh, that's at least what comes to mind. You want to prompt for the further no, question? Th- th- no, that's good. That's actually a, a really good segue to what I wanted to discuss. I think um, one phrase uh, that I found useful in my own journey is that the word agape comes from the Greek and has uh-huh. a sort of covenantal, transact- uh, almost transactional nature to it it's like the idea of you know uh, a formal contract binding you together and Uh 
it's in contrast to, say, storge, which is family affection, uh, which in Greek thought is kind of a lesser emotional flighty thing. Uh, uh -huh. And, you know, yeah. your Christians talk about agape all the time. They never talk about storge. storge um, is, much does that appear in the New Testament, storge? Um, I think it does, uh, okay. but... But like I said, it's written in Greek, and this is the way the, the Greek slice things up, right? And that's right. really useful. But the interesting is that the counterpart of agape in Hebrew thought is loving kindness, which is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. Uh -huh. And that is the word used to describe God, his hesed for his people, his loving kindness that never uh -huh. fails. Okay. But in Hebrew... That is the Hebrew concept of familial affection, and that uh, it's not this sort of weak emotional thing. It is this deep covenantal thing that is the, like, uh, I don't know if you, you probably, you, may not, you literally may have no idea what this feels like, but like uh, when I go to a family reunion, like I went to my um, uncle's 90th um, birthday, uh -huh. um, and I saw all my cousins and their kids. Uh -huh. And, like, I barely know their kids, uh, right? right? You know, we've seen them. But, like, just to see them, there was this, like, oh, you are part of my family. It is, right. I am glad to see you. I have this yeah. spontaneous emotional reaction of belonging. Uh-huh. Uh, and of being welcomed and belonging. And, like, that has said. Right. And in the Hebrew thought, that is the kind of love we're supposed to have, mm -hmm. right? Which is as strong as an unbreakable covenant, but as rich as a spontaneous kiss. Mm -hmm. And that is the, um, I think my definition now of, of love is unschematized right brain experience which is, you know, horribly technical definition, but it's precisely this tension you described, that right. I can have a intentional left brain commitment to something, right? Uh, but that is not the same as uh, a deep, uh, unfiltered, unself-protecting appreciation, enjoyment, cherishing of something. Yeah. Um, and so I find said as a useful way to remind myself of that. Like I said, you know, the Greek is great because it has all these fine distinctions. It's useful to think clearly and precisely, but that is also a trap, <laughs> right. right? And, you know, because then we can end up living in the left brain. So, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to live in that paradox of making all these fine distinctions about why it's dangerous to make fine distinctions, but such is my life. Um, right. uh, the, 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 the title you may have seen for this episode is operationalizing discipleship. And this is something oh. that I was thinking of. This is my new favorite word operational. Uh, -huh. uh, and I've been thinking about that today and I actually heard a, a sermon, uh, about this a few weeks ago about there's different levels of military activity. Uh, there's, you know, the, the, the strategic level, like what are the ultimate goals? 
right? Are you trying to achieve peace? Are you trying to achieve total victory? Are you trying to overthrow a government? Whatever. What is your strategy? What is the thing that you're trying to, what is your ultimate goal? And then there's the tactics. Okay, we're going to print leaflets. We're going to call voters. We're going to organize resistance cells, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but in between the tactical and strategic is this level called the operational. Uh-huh. which is concrete objectives. Like we're going to, um, you know, win primary elections or change election laws or uh, obtain funding from an external source. And right. what's interesting is that, you know, leadership tends to focus on the strategy. And uh-huh. you know, individual contributors tend to focus on the tactics. But, uh, and this is a bit of a segue, what I what I realized um, is is that the the level of objective is usually left to middle management, and there's this curious thing that's happened um, where I was working in IT at a startup, and you know we had this big urgent project, and like we were making no progress, even though everyone was clear what the ultimate goal was. And everyone was uh-huh. working hard, but like we were just running around in circles. And uh-huh. so uh, I ended up uh, buying actually my current company's product to build this centralized data system. And then I would w- sit down with all the different, uh, you know, uh, employees and say, okay, what is the data you need to get your job done? And what is the uh-huh. data I need people from you? And how do we get this stuff, you know, easy enough to use that you can manage it? And, and so that, and, uh, and, and a friend of mine pointed out to me, you know, what you're basically doing is automating middle management. Uh. Understanding the, the high level strategy, understanding the low level tasks and Uh creating the operational linkages. So people are set up to succeed. Right. And this idea of operationalizing a strategy um, beyond just having better tactics. Cause like there's a thousand companies building tools for the tactics, right? How to send better emails, right? And, and, you know, artificial intelligence is making all these things aggressive. And like, there's, you know, we have hundreds of vendors selling us. And what's funny is I realized like, ah, this is actually, uh, I, was, I woke up at five this morning and realized this is actually the business that my company is in. It's about decentralized data management, but the real problem is, uh, and this is a phrase I actually came up yesterday uh, in an intense conversation with my boss, is, yeah. and actually, the reason we got to this conversation, I asked him, well, what is the most important uh, problem we could solve for our customers? And right. he, he's not a Christian, but he's very spiritually said, well, obviously the worst problem is that, they're, is that they need a relationship with God, but we can't do anything about that. <laughs> Oh, and I said, uh-huh. well, maybe, because, um, you know, like the great thing about when I was at Apple is that a lot of our customers, like using an Apple product, especially for the first time, can be like a religious experience. Uh-huh. And one of the reasons why I believe, and I'm not saying Apple's perfect by any means, and there's certainly a, a dark side to all of this, but this idea that the un- is you feel the love that went into it, that like, the, 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 this this world I am entering into was created by someone who loves me and who uh-huh. understands what I need 
and has taken yeah. great pains to help me succeed. Right. And it's like, that is an aspect of what it is like to know God. It's like going uh -huh. to Disneyland. So that's why people have that emotional experience there, right? Is that you're entering a world that was created by someone who loves you. Yeah. And, you know, and the, um, and it's like, I feel like, you know, our company's goal, the, the, the problem that we have to face is people are alienated from their operational reality. Uh -huh. Is, you know, they have tools to help them do their tasks. They have strategies they believe in. They're trying to create life-saving uh, cures for disease and things like that. But their operational right. reality, they are alienated from. And right. this is, um, as a segue, like, this is my critique of Christendom. Uh -huh. You know, the, the Christian culture we've inherited from the last, you know, 15 to 1800 years is that, like, the strategy is is wonderful like okay we want the whole earth filled with the knowledge of glory lord we want you know d to make disciples right. of all nations you know uh, all the right. things uh there and the the, the tactics are uh, are really well polished right sermons bible studies worship uh -huh. music missions etc like there's all these tactics but like the hard part the thing that no one, the, the thing that the more grandiose your strategy and the more sophisticated your tools, the greater your alienation from operational reality because the gap between the two just gets massive. And right. I think it's sometimes called the, 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 the air sandwich, uh, 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 this gap between strategy and tactics. And this whole idea of, okay, this is the hard, ugly, messy work, operationalizing things. Uh -huh. And so this is the, and the thing that is, I think, uh, the, the, the concern I had when we were having our discussion earlier, um, and I think that you're, you're, you've been moving towards it, so I don't want to frame this as a negative, but I think the, the challenge is like, okay, I think at least we've gotten aligned on the right strategy. Like, okay, let's love, love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors and our families as ourselves. Like, okay, uh -huh. that's, 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 not a, that's a good strategy. Right. And like the tactics, is, okay, we need to pray, listen to the spirit, but, but there's something in the middle. And, and, and uh, this was the thing I got from my, you know, the, the, the sermon, was that the operational stuff is about actually accomplishing objectives. Right. You know, you have your overall purpose, and your vision, but what are the objectives? What are, you know, you need to find decent objectives, you know, like, you know, being the sort of person that our wives actually want to spend time with is a good objective. Right. But then right. how do we actually accomplish those objectives? And the, um, that requires delving in to this ugly topic of failure modes. Uh -huh. And this is the thing that is fascinating to me um, as someone who has failed a lot, right? The, uh, my autobiography is gonna be called the, uh, 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 All the Right Mistakes, The Hilarious uh -huh. Failures and Improbable Success of a Physicist in Silicon Valley. Uh, uh -huh. And I do see my failures as hilarious. 
Uh-huh. And um, but like I love my failures because uh-huh. that's where I am at the what was the the, the quote I heard. I'm going to mangle it. I think I tried to use it before, which was that it is only at the end of the world if we want to add to the world, we must first reach the end of the world. If we want to grow, if we want to add to ourselves, we must reach the end of ourselves. Uh-huh. Um, and it is precisely where myself ends will be just a worldview, the schema that I use to make sense of reality. It is precisely where that fails me that I grow. I mean, physics uh-huh. is actually a really good training for this. Because the history of yeah. physics is, oh, yeah, we have this really good set of examples that explain our current reality. But then mm-hmm. we accumulate anomalies. And the easy thing to do is ignore the anomalies because, right. you know, you can, the schema is really useful. But eventually the anomalies build up and you get what Kuhn calls a scientific revolution where you need a yeah. new paradigm. And I would argue that that is analogous to Christ's idea that we need a new self. Uh-huh. It is the, you know, it is the framework and the reason that's important, um, there's this wonderful phrase that a culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh-huh. If you have a culture that's designed, cause, because culture is important, right? The way uh, individuals and organizations function is they have a culture. And in particular, uh-huh. uh, I mean, you, you probably have studied this in cross-cultural ministry, uh, that we, uh, we've talked about, like, you know, the hard part is not the cross-cultural ministry. The hard part is seeing your own culture <laughs> and right. realizing that you have one and that your culture is just as flawed and arbitrary as this weird foreign culture you're studying. Uh, it's impossible and, to believe that. Sorry? It's impossible to actually believe that, that what you start with is wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. The advantage I have is that I am alienated from both my host culture and my home culture. Right. So it's easier for me to so that, you know, I'm always in this tension of do I trust myself or do I trust the outside world? Um, uh-huh. And but like I have no peer group or, well, of course, everyone I know believes this. So therefore, it's obviously true. Um, right. I guess I did at some point when I was you know, younger, you know, maybe before I, yeah. hit, uh, uh, anyway, but, yep. you know, I've always had this sense of alienation and it's become more conscious and profound over the years. Um, right. But anyway, so the reason is that, so we have, is that and the, the, the hypothesis is that culture is a way of taming the infinite. The world is infinitely complex and multidimensional and no man uh-huh. can see God and live. Right. If we try right. to encompass all of reality, our heads would explode. Yeah. Uh, and I've come close a few times <laughs> and and it's like, OK, I have to make simplifications. And when we did this philosophy project, we talked about the idea of roles. Let me just take on a role where like uh-huh. I'm not going to like when I was at Apple, um, like I just assumed that every year we would come out with an amazing new piece of hardware called an iPhone. Like it uh-huh. was not my problem. I just assumed that like the people working on it, like they were the ones putting in 60 hour weeks and flying around the globe trying to make it happen. But me, I could just right. assume it was going to happen. And then I would right. worry about like, how do I make sure we have software that's ready to meet that hardware when it ships. Right. And, uh-huh. once I, and several, I could eliminate vast swaths of complexity and focus on 
getting something useful done within my lane, trusting in the larger system in which those roles were embedded to have everything make sense. And, right. and that is culture. It's where people do worry about the right things and they don't worry about the wrong things. Uh-huh. And, and they have internalized, like we, Apple was really good about, it has, Apple's notorious for its almost cult-like culture, right? Right. And the words are probably not are etymologically connected. And uh-huh. what that means is that there's certain ways of doing things that people just instinctively understand so you don't have to tell them. Right. And that's great when the culture is aligned with the business you are in. Now, I joined Apple in 1997 when the culture was not aligned with any sort of reality. <laughs> and the company uh-huh. was six months away from bankruptcy because people would just thrash around madly and not actually build anything of value but they would just randomly ship stuff when some jerk would just shove it through for sheer force of will without caring uh-huh. about anybody else. And, uh-huh. you know, Steve Jobs had to come in and basically like the alpha male, you know, recognize those who shared his DNA and kill or, you know, kick off everyone else. And right. that created an incredibly strong culture, which, you know, for most part, you know, we're a little flabby and middle-aged at this point, but it still basically survives. And anyway, uh-huh. this, is, this is the thing. Like culture, when it's aligned with reality, is incredibly powerful. But where yeah. it's misaligned with reality, it is incredibly destructive. Uh-huh. And the, um, this is the, um, and culture is basically this, uh, I guess my other favorite word from a few months ago was homeostasis. Like our bodies have homeostasis. So, you know, I'm sitting here with two dogs pulling in different directions and I don't have to think about it because my body naturally will shift its weight around so I don't fall over, right? Those uh-huh. are all unconscious movements. Uh, they may have been learned at some point, I guess, but they've been baked into my sort of low-level operating system. So things right. like breathing and walking and balancing uh, can all happen more or less automatically. They're right. sort of below the conscious level. And culture is the same way. It's embedded below the conscious level. This is, this is the self that we have. Right. Right. And our unconscious mechanisms are designed to preserve that self, which is really okay. good. Like, you know, my friend yep. Leland had this problem, like he would forget to eat for a couple of days. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, his homeostatic systems that preserve him were not that robust or uh, weren't successful at yanking his conscious attention away to the things that would actually keep him alive. Right. You know, right. and so this is the ch- is that we have these we have this self, and we have these systems, whether that's the personal self or the social self, at various scales is that self is the thing that we just unconsciously assume is reality. Uh-huh. And, and we need to because that is what keeps that is what it means to be an incarnate being in this world. Yeah. Is that there are things that are necessary to stay in that. And that, those, like, we think about the physical things, like, you know, breathing and eating and drinking water. But it's just as true of the social realities. Right. Uh, I love the movie Inside Out, where like the job of, of shame or disgust is to keep us from poisoning ourselves socially, because as social uh-huh. creatures, you know, like us, like our dogs, like relationship is life. Uh-huh. We know we cannot survive, and therefore our homeostatic systems 
uh, drive us to avoid certain kinds of shame, certain kinds of failure, certain kinds of loss of status, because those are as intrinsic to our survival and, and arguably more intrinsic. Like most people would literally rather die than betray their tribe. Right. You know, that has been true for most of human history. And the tribes that survived had people like that. Uh-huh. Uh, right. You know, and so like this is the problem that I believe we need to confront in order to operationalize our discipleship is that we have all these social selves and personal selves. And this is why the, the paradigmatic verse for me is, you know, Luke 9:23. If anyone wants to be my disciple, Jesus said, he must deny his self, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And the whole idea of a cross, it is precisely the antithesis of self-protection. It is the thing that my current self sees as um, the thing to be instinctively avoided at all costs. Mm-hmm. And the and that and you know maybe it may not be a linear progression, but it's at least useful to think of it that way. Is that first right. we have to stop listening to ourselves. Uh-huh. Uh, the denying because our self will tell us, you know, will 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 we'll very helpfully uh, erase from our minds anything that is a threat to self that it can't handle. Uh-huh. Uh, I am perpetually shocked by how many times I'll have a conversation with someone or see something, and then the next time I talk to them, they literally have no memory of the thing that was discussed. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, occasionally I discover this true about myself and makes me wonder how many times I don't discover it. Uh-huh. Is that, and that this is the, this I believe was the purpose and is the point of spiritual discipline, right? Mm-hmm. Is to mortify the self, is to try to get us. And whether that's, you know, Bible study or prayer or whatever, it is like, okay, you know, the, and this is why the question I asked you on Sunday, right, was like, uh, do you want Christ to save you from yourself? Right. And because I believe, you know, paradoxically, that in order to become a true self, my, my, the, uh, my real self, my authentic self, whatever the right term is, in order to actually have true intimate relationships with other people, I have to be willing to lose my current self and, in a sense, my current relationships with other people, the current status and role and culture that I possess. So are you and, losing yourself synonymous with saving, your, saving yourself? Well, so I'm saying that's what, what Jesus did, right? Yeah. What's that? Jesus said, right? Whoever would save his life must lose it. And whoever tries to save his life will lose it. Okay, so you're talking about saving your... uh, Do I want uh, myself to be saved in the sense of losing myself? 
through. I, mean, I, I guess the 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 the, 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 more, the, the, the actually this is funny. This is actually hilarious because our uh, my my company's product uh-huh. is trying to create this sort of organizational coherence, and the key is having time-stamped versions of collections. Um, and it's basically saying, okay, I must lose version X of myself so I can gain version X plus one of myself, a newer version of self that is closer to Christ. And is that a saving of oneself? Uh, or? Y- well, yes, I think that the, the idea uh, to, to save our life, to save a new version, literally, is <laughs> what it comes down to in the, in the computer context, right, right. Um, is to surrender the old version. Okay, so when you were asking, um, do I want to be saved from myself, was that the question? Yes. Is that the way that we're closing? Yeah. So it 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 was unclear to me, and still is unclear, whether that's save myself in the sense of losing myself, or which saves myself, or saving myself, which loses myself, um, because the it, it's, it's right. I, I uh, okay. So let me phrase Yes, and that and I don't know how much of that is spiritual or cognitive. But let me try and frame it a different way. And precisely, and this is precisely the, the idea of how do we operationalize discipleship? Because we can say the words, but what do they actually right. mean? Um, yeah. The best way I can describe it is that, uh, 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 I don't know, I'm going to try a bunch of ways. We'll see if any of them stick. One okay. is cultivating a healthy self-hatred. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. In the sense that realizing that my current self, my current identity, the current way I think about myself is, in fact, the greatest barrier to my becoming a more authentic discipleship disciple of Jesus. Is that true if you're hating yourself or just if you're not hating yourself? Well, I think it's true. But when I realize that, that's when I start hating myself, as opposed to cherishing myself okay. or protecting myself. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, when people say, well, that's just the way I am, it's like, well, uh-huh. yes, and that's the problem, right? I mean, like, <laughs> at least if we're serious about this whole discipleship of Jesus thing, then, like, right. to say I'm just the way, that's just the way I am, end of story is the opposite of denying yourself. Right, okay. okay. It is It is who I currently am, but it is not who I want to be. And uh-huh. the more, and the stronger version of this, you know, and maybe this makes me a radical, and if it's so, I'm, this, is, this is the cross I would happily die on, is uh-huh. that the, in order to see all the world, you know, become disciples of Jesus, I need to start with me that uh, the greatest barrier to barrier to being a disciple of Jesus. So the greatest barrier to discipling the world is myself being a disciple of Jesus. And the greatest barrier to me being a disciple of Jesus is myself. And it is that self that I hate the, the me that keeps me from being the kind of authentic disciple 
that actually makes authentic disciples of Jesus. And that's why I'm always bemused by your um, concern slash obsession about evil out in the world. Um, because to me, the evil in the world is just a way, is just a mirror that shows me the evil within me that I have not yet dealt with. Mm -hmm. And there's a, I don't know if you were talking about logs and specs earlier. I don't know if you saw the post I have. I actually pinned this to the top of my blog. What it was, it was called spec to beam to cross uh, responsive discipleship. And the idea that when something bugs me about other people or systems or what was it, uh, personal culture or structural aspects uh, of, of evil or things wrong in the world, those are all specs. Uh, and every spec is a sign that I'm carrying around a beam in my eye. And those beams, I love the phrase beam because uh, it has both uh, the sense of like a radiant beam, like a beam of light. Um, it also has the sense of, of a structural support. Uh -huh. And what ha the, the, the challenge is that my ego, myself, my identity is held up by these load-bearing beams. Right. Like because I see the world a certain way, I'm able to function because it gives me an ego. It tells me this is my role. And therefore, right. I live up to my obligations. This is what it means to be an adult. And but it is precisely those beings that are keeping me from seeing the face of Christ, that are keeping me from seeing the woundedness in others in a way that uh, um, the, uh, the phrase, uh, I'll, I'll, last acronym, and then I'll stop <laughs> for a bit, is uh, we talked about growing closer to Jesus earlier my new version of that is growing closer uh, growing closer to christ through his cross so gcc thc which i pronounce as geistic uh geese is a celtic word g-e-a-s for like quest or curse or gift it's kind of an interesting amalgamation of those it is, it is the thing that you must do and if you fail to do it, you know, horrible things happen. But if you do do it, you tap into sort of otherworldly power. And that's the idea of a geese. And uh, it's a sick geese. It's not like a narrow thing that makes me, uh, hopefully not a narrow thing, that makes me very narrow and focused and alienated. Um, but it is the thing that makes me fully human. Is, is this, this Christing process makes me more vulnerable, more authentic, more relational, more responsive to people and circumstances around me in a way that they see Christ and they see Christ in me and they experience it. So anyway, I will stop there because that was my long left brain rant. Yeah, okay. Um, is there question at the end of that or uh anything uh, no no like i like I, I need to get that off my chest so thank you for listening yeah sure, sure. um yeah I, I, my one one wonder that comes out of that is 
uh, is that the state that a disciple will always be in of it 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 feels or it strikes me as being self focused rather than uh christ focused hating myself um but maybe I'm misimagining what you're describing um, but be the 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 consciousness of myself not being what I should be um it seems to me to be in uh opposition to or conflict with the Hebrews injunction to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Um and I wonder if there's a stage where we are uh having ecstatic union with Christ where it then is more uh it's not as wrong <laughs> If, if you want to call it wrong to fight social evils, um, to deliver the oppressed, to speak up for those who are suffering. I came across this verse in the Proverbs a couple of days ago, the fertile ground or the fallow ground of the poor could yield abundant food, but it just a sweet prayer. And uh, there are you know, various passages in the scripture that seem to suggest that we should be concerned for those who are experiencing oppression or injustice. Right. So I think there's something interesting here, partly cognitive, partly emotional, partly spiritual. And maybe that's a good uh, cliffhanger to leave this on because I have an answer, but I don't know if intellectually sharing it will do either of us any good. Right. And okay. I think the passage that you mentioned of Hebrews 12 would be a really good uh, opportunity for a reflection uh-huh. uh, about, um, you know, which talks about, and maybe this is actually a chance with your friend that you mentioned that you're walking through this challenging uh, uh-huh. season with is to, uh, we get together and do a P-R-A-Y session on the first few verses of Hebrews 12 together. Yeah. Okay. Might be a good starting point for reflecting on it. And, you know, uh, I can send you, I mean, um, we could do it, uh, see this Saturday I'm, I'm busy. Um, but there's, um, I mean, technically I'm busy at nine, but it might be a bit much to, I mean, I guess I could even do it this Saturday at 7 a.m. if your friend's up then, up for it then. Um, yeah, right. if not, we can start a, a chat thread. Why don't, you, why don't you start a chat thread with the three of us and we can try and see if we can converge on a date, you know, plan for like an hour for three people seems to work. And right. I did a slightly expanded version of the PRAY with my cousin, uh, cousin uh-huh. my cousin and, and her husband. And yeah. that actually fit really well into one hour. And, um, uh-huh. So I think that format might be a good, um, the, main, the main thing is this basically what we talked about before is that we start with a, a kind of a very brief Emmanuel listening to Jesus. And then we do the, the asking and the yielding by sharing and listening and praying for each other. Uh-huh. And that seemed to work. Uh, yeah, this is, I think very, uh, relevant and significant what we're processing as i'm i'm sensing that i may have enough pieces 
to try and start something that can multiply more real discipleship as opposed to just uh, going through the motions of what we think it means to um, be a Christian, quote unquote. Um, so yeah, yeah let's continue to press on with that. Yeah, and right. two years since we started trying to do discipling by Jesus, we finally get around to actually doing it ourselves. All right. Yeah. All right. Bless you, man. Have a All great right. day. God bless. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.